You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. It's been called a psalm for old age. Maybe I thought it was fitting. Whenever I've uh, preached, I've had the custom or the habit, if you like, of sitting down with Adele, my wife, and uh, going over the passage, uh, reading it, and uh, getting her to censor all the things that she knew I ought not to say. And usually she would take out the scissors and uh, suggest a certain number of things to be taken out. Well, last night was no exception. I went to see her and... uh, I got her to read the psalm, Psalm 71, and when she came to the end of it, she just said, oh, that's so sad. So I chatted to her about the psalm, and we went through it again, and then she said, oh, that's good. And I trust that those things will come through as we look at it. It's a heartfelt prayer penned by a man who's showing all the classic signs of aging and sensing his vulnerability. But you know, it's not just a message for old age. It's for young and old alike. He's getting old. No doubt his memory is not what it used to be. I expect he went into the room to get something, and when he got there, he thought to himself, what was it I came in here for? And probably everything took him twice as long, and he only did half as much. His mind probably wasn't quite as quick and sharp as it used to be. And his legs didn't quite work the way they used to work. And he had to think twice before he lifted anything. And then to add his fears, as we were singing there quite clearly in that paraphrase, he's facing his enemies who are out to finish him off. But, and this is the point, he knew what to do. He knew where to go, and he went to his God just as naturally as a door swings on its hinges. In you, O Lord, he says, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. And that's not just a plea, because he knows who he's speaking to. It's an affirmation of faith. In you, O Lord, I have trusted. I will not be put to shame. I love that old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. You know the last verse goes, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, he will not, he will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no never, no never forsake. That's the kind of confidence that this man had. Well, let's just read the psalm, and may the Lord bring out the meaning to it, to us as we read it. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. 
Deliver me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of evil and cruel men. For you have been my hope, O sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I've become like a portent, a sign to many. But you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone, for my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together, they say, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Be not far from me, O my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O Sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteousness, yours alone. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. When I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God, you who have done great things. Who, O God, is like you? Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again from the depths of the earth. You will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once again. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I whom you have redeemed. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long. For those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. This is the word of the Lord. On New Year's uh, Day, I was... um, driving back from Meagle along, you know, the back road that comes through Okta House. And it was a terrible evening. Um, the road was wet. It was pouring. Cars were coming in the other direction with their lights seemingly full on. You know, these new lights that people have these days that are so brilliant you can't even dip them, it seems to me. Well, the weather was grim. And uh, I was listening to Anna-Marie Minhall. Now, if you were listening to Anna-Marie Minhall on New Year's Day, you know she had a frightful cold. She kept asking for a glass of port to solve her problems. But she was asking listeners if they would like to choose one word to sum up the new year. And in the midst of all the offerings, somebody proffered the word grief. Obviously someone from Dundee, I think. And I thought, yeah, that just about sums it up. 
But it wasn't the word that I was thinking of in the context of thinking about this first verse of this psalm as I was. And the word that came to my mind, and it's particularly personal, is the word transitions. And you may think to yourself, I can't quite see what that's got to do with anything. Well, let me tell you. When I first sensed that God was calling me to the mission field, I was terrified by the thought that I'd never be able to master another language. What's more, I was pretty conservative in the kind of things that I ate and the thought of eating all those things that missionaries say they eat on the mission field, they don't always, just filled me with great terror. And my father, who was a a disciplinarian, said, you know, I don't quite believe in this living by faith sort of thing. Um, You really ought to be working for your living. It was then that my mother said, look, Dad, God's not going to be a worse employer than any human employer. He can trust the Lord. How right she was. And it was then that this first verse of the psalm came to my notice In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. I can trust him. And then on another occasion when I was actually on the mission field, my life was threatened by the communists. There was a communist uprising. Adele was in hospital with tuberculosis. There were no medicines. Nobody knew that we were ill. No telephones. Can you imagine that, young people? No telephones. No such thing as fax machines. No one knew. My life was threatened. Seriously. And I was scared. What would happen to Adele in hospital? No one knew she was there. If I was killed... And in the moment when I really was terrified, I opened my Bible and it fell open at Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Strength came from that. And then just recently, another transition. As some of you will know, Adele has Alzheimer's. And perhaps the hardest decision I've ever had to make when she had to go into care. Can I trust God for even this? Can I trust God to care for Adele? In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. He's the one to whom I go. The psalmist certainly knows he's getting old. Look at it, verse 9. Do not cast me away, he says, when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. I have an elderly friend in the United States who loves to send letters from time to time and Christmas cards. And on nearly every occasion, and I guess this is one of the failings of age, he puts the same line. Old age is not for wimps. And some of us will agree. 
But as the general director of the OMF, Oswald Sanders, used to say, age is in attitudes, not arteries. It's all to do with mindset. Well, it's good to think that way anyway as you get older. But that's what comes through this old man's prayer to me. The younger, when he was younger, no doubt, he had all sorts of practical issues like every other man. He was probably worried about uh, education, employment, finding transport, although I guess they didn't worry about cars in those days, but he would have worried about getting enough cattle, finding a wife and husband, or finding a wife in his case, buying a house, all the rest. This would have filled his horizons. But throughout his life, what comes through in this psalm is that the predominant note was that he was God-centered. Verse 5, from you have been, for you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since when? Since my youth. This isn't anything new. From birth I have relied on you, verse 6. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. That was the central core reality of his life. Confident hope and conscious, I mean conscience reliance on his God. So that he could say in verse 14, as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. God was his refuge. God was his joy. It was an inexhaustible subject to expound his salvation. That's what kept him young. Attitude, not arteries. And that mindset helped him to keep his head above water. Now I want to backtrack for a moment for another thought along this line. When I read all the commentaries, I discover that nobody's really quite sure who wrote this psalm. Some people think it was David, and some people think, well, it might have been Jeremiah. Some of the tones that come through are a bit Jeremiah-like, and he has clipped verses from other psalms that probably were written by David. But one thing is clear. Whoever it was that wrote it, he was a Hebrew, and what he was writing would have been more obvious to Hebrews than perhaps it is to us. Whenever we try to understand the Word of God, of course, we need to understand what kind of writing it is. Is it a story? Is it narrative? Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it an allegory? Is it a metaphor? And some parts are obvious. I mean, if you pick up the Song of Solomon and uh, you hear this infatuated young man saying, your eyes are doves, well, we don't think they really were doves, do we? But we know what he meant. That says, unless you're totally unromantic. And she said, uh, his legs are pillars of marble. I can't see anything very romantic about that, but obviously for her that was romantic. We understand the kind of language. It's a love poem. But there's another aspect too, and that is we really need to try and understand the kind of format or the way in which something is written in order to get a message across. What's the context of what is being said? It's not just the words. I suppose when you've had to learn another language and live in another country, particularly in Asia, you have to realize that language is more than words. 
When one of our boys was learning French in school, the French master used to get them to learn list after list after list of vocabularies. And I thought, I challenged the man. I said, I don't think that's any way to learn a language. He disagreed. I think he was a classic scholar. But for those of us that are more earth, earthy, it doesn't work like that. When I lived in Singapore, initially going out to Asia, I lived in a Muslim family, with a Muslim family who spoke Malay rather than English. And I had to learn Malay out of the context of the way that these people use the language, out of the way in which they spoke and how they dealt with the issues of everyday life. You see, it's no good speaking a foreign language with English uh, words, or sorry, it's no, no good speaking English with foreign words. It doesn't work that way, unless you happen to be Manuel, you know? Hello, how are you? I speak English, I learned it from my book. Yeah, and that's the way some missionaries do. Language comes out of our culture. That's why those of us who are designated as wrinklies sometimes need to get our grandchildren to interpret for us because the culture's changing and the language changes with it. Well, the Malays had a particular device by which they communicated their messages. I believe it dated right back to the 17th century. They called it pantun. It reminds me a little bit about uh, like our limericks. Pisang mas di bawah layar, hutang mas boleh dibayar, hutang budi di bawah mati, which doesn't mean anything to you, and if I translate it, it probably means even less. Gold bananas are carried by the sale. A debt of gold can be paid. A debt of kindness we carry to death. Well, I think that translation's got more to do with McGonagall than uh, Rabbi Burns. But the punchline I think you can get, can't you? You can always pay off a loan, but the indebtedness of kindness is not a loan that you can ever really repay. But what on earth have the gold bananas carried by sale got to do with it? I think McGonagall would have had a, a heyday with that, with his love of the silvery tay, because it's got to do with rivers. I think most cities in Malaysia today are so modern that the younger generation of Malaysians probably wouldn't understand the poem either. But if you go into East Malaysia and to Borneo, you'll still file, even to this day, that if you want to get up to the villages and the interior, the way is via the rivers, unless you happen to have a plane or a helicopter. And on those rivers, people on the side of the rivers will cut bamboo. And the bamboo, they will lash together to make a raft. And these rafts will go up the river to the place where the banana plantations are. And there are these little golden bananas, tiny pisang mas, tiny bananas. And they will collect these tiny bananas and they will put them on the road raft and they will float it down the river to the village markets. So if you were a Malay and you listened, you would understand because it comes out of their culture, their background, the way they live, the things they do. These things are common to them. And why am I saying all this? Well, and I'm not a great expert here, so you'll have to forgive me, but as I understand it, 
every culture has its own way and form of trying to get a message across. And we are familiar with the fact that the psalmist uses this, 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 the parallelisms. It repeats the phrase. Look at verse 22. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, your, my God. Then it says, I will sing praise to you with the lyre, holy one of Israel. And surely that repetition is to push the point home and to convey enthusiasm. But evidently there's another characteristic which according to a scholar by the name of John Steck comes through in this psalm and that is that sometimes the psalmist will put the punchline, the center of the message, right at the center of the psalm. And according to Steck, that is what he has done here in this psalm and that brings us in the original to verse 14. As for me... I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more. And that's why this psalm is not sad. The one thing that he wants to get across in this prayer is that nothing he has to face, no trial, no difficulty, no weakness, no frailty because he's getting older, can ever rob him of his hope and his trust in God. That's what he's trying to get across. No matter what, God is his refuge. And therefore no situation that he will ever be called to face should be seen as being hopeless. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. And it's a hope and confidence that draws him out in praise. He's not saying I won't have problems or that God is going to remove all the problems. He's not saying that God is going to ensure that he has prosperity. He's not saying that God will stop him getting wrinkles or losing his hair. And he's not saying that his life will be spared. His enemies speak against him and he's become a portent tomorrow. They see his weakness. But what he is saying is that no matter what he is facing, no matter how difficult his life has become, no matter how traumatic, he will always have hope. He can trust God utterly. God is his refuge and strength. He will not be put to shame. In Isaiah 46, we read these words, Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. And this man had walked long enough with his God to know his God well enough to know that that was true. Have I? Have you? And you say, now wait a minute, uh, hope? I will always have hope? Is that enough? What do you mean by hope? When you say, um, I hope it won't snow, snow, it's probably nothing more than wishful thinking, is it? Unless, in fact, you've got one of these uh, beautiful Audi Quattro. If anyone's got one here, forgive me. You can let me have it later. You know the advert? You will, 
never have to listen to a weather forecast again. I suppose if you have got an Audi Quattro, you want to see if that's true. I once had a four-wheel drive, and it was rather nice when it was snowing. I, I got a real kick out of it, like it's ever going to be true here in Dundee. That's not what he means. He's not talking about that sort of hope or that wishful thinking. What he's saying is that he knows for certain that God is never going to let him down. Look at verse 5. Why? For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, and he elaborates on that, my confidence since my youth. God has never failed him. He's found that God is faithful, and he's discovered that no matter what situation he finds himself in, he can cling on to the faithfulness of God, no matter what storm rages. I think we get a little more light on what he means by that word hope when we think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, familiar verses. Because there in Romans chapter 5, Paul links that word hope with something else. He says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings, says Paul. We glory in our difficulties, our problems, our fears, our testings. In whatever shape they are, whether they are without or within, we are able to glory in these things. And then why? He says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope there's the word and hope doesn't put us to shame why because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us in other words the Holy Spirit seals and confirms that confident hope in our hearts in that so that we are able to trust God there's a link here these words, character and hope. So what does he mean by character there? Well, it's a word in, uh, that refers to something that's been tested and proved to be the genuine article. And there isn't, so I'm told, a single word in English by which you can translate it. Now, if you'll forgive me giving you an illustration from my one-time engineering background... Perhaps it will help to understand this word. If you're going to build a car, you've got to think very seriously, not only about the kind of materials you're going to use, but whether or not they stand up to the job. And a car is made of very many different parts. So if you're thinking about the cars, you think about the kind of mild steel, ductile steel plate that you'll need. If you're thinking about the crankshaft or the gear wheels, then you've got to have a different kind of steel altogether. Or if you want spring steel, that's got to be treated very, very differently. Each job requires a different kind of steel. And once that steel has been specified, it's got to be tested and tried. 
And it's only when it has been tested and tried and checked out that it is proven to have the required character to do the job. Proven quality, durability, strength, and reliability. And if it doesn't have that, then it's useless. Uh, we used to have a, a, a topolino. Do you know what a topolino is? Anybody know what a topolino is? Yeah, John does, yes. Marvelous cars. Italian, Fiat. Not these kind of uh, so-called Fiat 500s. That's a Topolino on steroids. Nothing like the original. We had an original. Uh, and uh, one day in the traffic of Jakarta, the, there was no connection between the engine and the wheels, which is very disconcerting in Jakarta traffic, I tell you. What had happened was that the drive shaft going into the rear wheel has a, a metal coupling, and that coupling had sheared. All the teeth had come off. Well, with uh, my enthusiasm as a car mechanic, I decided that was a simple job. I would just go and find the right part and put it on, and with pay presto, we'd be away again. So I went downtown and went to the motor factors, and there I discovered the required part, duly stamped Fiat original. No fears, no worries there. I fitted it on. I hadn't gone very many miles towards the center of town, then clunk, 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 started again in the back, and I thought, oh dear, I wonder if I forgot to do up the bolts. But it wasn't. The splines had started to be chewed. Didn't matter what it said on the outside. It wasn't the real McCoy. It did not have character. It wasn't proven. Wouldn't pass the street test. Probably something forged in the back streets of Jakarta. Not reliable. Contrast that with the faith of the psalmist, this old man. He had walked with God through all his trials and found God was his refuge and strength. And that developed his character. His confidence. So for the half psalmist, when he speaks about hope, it is his confident trust in God that's come through a faith that has been used and tested and proved to be genuine in the experiences of his daily life. And a faith that far from being shattered by the trials of life has been made more strong. And has brought that confident certainty that God will never let him down. It's interesting because the only other place I think where that word uh, that Paul uses is used in the New Testament comes in James chapter 1. You know how that starts? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Sounds a little bit masochistic, doesn't it? And then he goes on, because you know what? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, steadfastness, durability, reliability, character. I am sure all of us love John Newton's hymn, Begone Unbelief, 
My Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel I smile at the storm. His love in times past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. I said this isn't just a psalm for the elderly. That's because you see how in this psalm this man had walked with God from the very first moments of his life. Verse 6, from birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. So when in his age he can pray as he prays, where does that unshakable confidence come from? It's nothing new. It didn't suddenly appear when his hair fell out or his teeth The Reverend Ernest Kevin, who was the founder of the London Bible College, which I think is now called the London School of Theology, had a, a four-word motto engraved above his mantelpiece. It was simply this, as now, so then. As now, so then. As I walk by faith now, as I seek for God to be the center of my life now, as I learn to obey now, as I get to grips with his word now, as I discover his faithfulness now, as I stand on his promises now, so then, at the end of the road, I'll be able to say with the psalmist in verse 19, Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things. Who is like you, God? I will praise you with your harp for your faithfulness, O my God. It's obvious, isn't it, that age is not a two-way journey. It's a one-way journey with no exceptions. And all of us, are headed, and we all need the help and advice we can get to face up to life. And to call this psalm just a psalm for the elderly or the aged is to miss this vital underlying truth. Hope and confidence down the road only comes when the odds are stacked against us if we spent our lives walking by faith to prove his faithfulness. I love the verses 18 and 22 because that's precisely what this man wants to do. He wants to continue to bear witness. He wants to continue to tell the world and the next generation that he's got a job to do and a God to glorify. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation your mighty acts to all who are to come. 
I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. He's immortal until his work is done. And so he can even face the last hurdle, death, verse 20, with a steady eye. You will rescue my life again from the depths of the earth. You will again bring me up. No, he's not going to be spared from dying. I'm sure if Townen had been alive in the days of the psalmist, he would have had a hearty amen to that wonderful hymn of Townen's, There is a hope that stands the test of time. Do you know that one? There is a hope that stands the test of time, that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave to see the matchless beauty of a day divine when I behold his face. When suffering cease and sorrows die, and every longing satisfied, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul, for I am truly home. Ultimately, death for him is the door to life, and the God who gave him life in the womb, the God on whom he's relied from his first breath, who's his refuge, his strength, And the sovereign in his life is never going to leave him or forsake him. And he will shepherd him as he shepherds us and walks with him and walks with us even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Well, as I said, we're not told who wrote the psalm. We don't know exactly the nature of all his troubles or how he really felt about them. But whoever it was and whatever he faced, it was his knowledge of God throughout his life that both defined and sustained him right to the very end. Attitudes or arteries? A question for those of us who call ourselves wrinklies. What about the mindset for 2015? I thought of two passages from Paul's epistles to close with, which I think sum up what I want to say. In 2 Timothy 4 to 6, Paul at the end of his life could say, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And how could Paul actually say that? Did it suddenly come to him when the thought of his death was so imminent? I don't think so. I think that testimony was the fruit of his attitude or his mindset. Or if you like, it was the fruit of the habit of his lifetime. His heart and mission. And he spells it out again 
in Philippians 3, 8 to 14, where he says, I considered everything loss because of the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. As for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.